This is the Tribune Audio Network. This is the Backstory Podcast. I'm Larry Potash. On this show, we uncover the backstory behind some of the most intriguing tales in history, culture, science, and religion. In this episode, he was a bootlegger, and at one point, he was bigger than Al Capone. Later, he was purportedly the inspiration for the title character in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. But you probably don't even know his name. This is The Backstory. Fellow members of the City Council, in less than two hours, liquor will be declared illegal by decree of the distinguished gentlemen of our nation's Congress. The HBO series Boardwalk Empire features famous gangsters like Capone and Luciano, but a lesser-known historical name appears briefly, George Remus, and the eccentric bootlegger has a habit of referring to himself in the third person. Don't take it personally, kid. What do you think George Remus spent five years doing? Come again? I said, what do you think George Remus was doing for him? Ain't you George Remus? Referring to himself in the third person, just one of Remus's many idiosyncrasies. Remus sells the best liquor in the business. America has to come to Remus to get it. Author Karen Abbott saw Boardwalk and wondered, why hasn't anyone heard of this guy? Within a year of, of becoming a bootlegger, he owned 35% of all the alcohol in the United States, which is astounding. And he, you know, had to comment on that in the third person. He was a brilliant man. He was crafty. He was an opportunist. He was somebody who was looking for any angle into the American dream. She tells the bootlegger king's story in her book, The Ghosts of Eden Park. A married man, he falls in love with another married woman, Imogene Holmes. It's a story of money, love, and revenge. Remus quits school and works in his uncle's pharmacy in Chicago. Then he becomes a famous defense attorney. When the Volstead Act becomes law, he notices a loophole that fits his skill set perfectly. An exemption to prohibition medicinal liquor. Meanwhile, nobody was really using alcohol for medicinal purposes, and he just thought it was a joke. He thought it was the greatest joke in, in the civilized country that he had ever heard of. Remus moves to Cincinnati to be closer to the whiskey supply. To take advantage of the medicinal liquor loophole, he owns distilleries and drug companies. So he had all his men loading that alcohol onto his trucks, ostensibly going off to be sold on the medicinal legal market. Meanwhile, another set of employees would hijack those trucks, steal all the liquor, and then divert it onto the illegal market at any price Remus named. So he was sort of robbing Remus to pay Remus, and he called this the circle. His network involves paying off everyone from federal agents to politicians. He makes $30 million in his first year, the equivalent of $430 million in today's money. December 31st, 1921. Remus throws a spectacular New Year's Eve party, much like the one seen in The Great Gatsby. He and his second wife, Imogene, are desperate to be accepted by Cincinnati's upper class. Some believe Remus inspired the Gatsby character played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Remus wanted to impress, so he had these elaborate party favors. He gave out diamond stick pins for the men, watches. Um, the women each got a brand new 1922 car. 
Every guest had a $1,000 bill tucked beneath his or her plate and in a gesture emblematic of the times and one that would be remembered with all decades later, uh, Remus lit his guest cigars with $100 bills. <laughs> there were synchronized swimmers and water nymphs, you know, doing these things, their toes going up and down in unison. Is Gatsby really based on Remus? Author F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes his Great Gatsby novel in 1925. There's no hard evidence that they ever met, but nevertheless, uh, Fitzgerald and the entire world knew who George Remus was by the time he started writing The Great Gatsby, and the similarities between uh, Remus and Gatsby are conspicuous. I think they both lived in an opulent mansion, they both owned a string of pharmacies, they were both obsessed with an enigmatic woman through these crazy lavish parties, and I think both longed to inhabit a world that didn't want them. But when Gatsby's story is published, there's still plenty of drama ahead for George Remus. His success catches the attention of the federal government and its new assistant attorney general, who is a woman. Mabel Walker Willebrandt is the first. I think that's the reason that they picked Willebrandt. Oh, let's put a little lady in the office. She's going to be overwhelmed. She doesn't know what she's going to do. And she'll just be lost and we could continue our business as usual. At 32, she's just five years out of law school and hasn't prosecuted a case in her career. She was also nearly deaf. She spent an hour each morning concealing hearing aids with her very carefully coiffed hairstyle. And you can imagine she just had all of these forces working against her, crooked politicians. People were hostile to the prohibition law. And her own force of prohibition agents were also corrupt and taking bribes. She goes after Remus. She is every bit as ambitious and ruthless as he is and uh, decides that she's gonna make an example out of him. Willebrandt has one honest agent, Franklin Dodge, from a prominent family in Michigan with powerful connections in Washington. And he was considered a rising star there. I think that he was somebody who was willing to take risks and go undercover and hobnob with the bootleggers um, and try to get inside information in that way. And Willebrandt trusted him. He investigates Remus's empire and gathers enough evidence to put him away. But Remus hears Dodge isn't as clean as some believe and he tells Imogene to cozy up to Dodge and see if he can get him out. But he did not suspect what was going to happen, which was that Franklin Dodge and Imogene started carousing together. And Imogene told Remus she was going to help him get out of jail. She was going to cultivate Dodge. Um, and she was certainly cultivating Dodge, uh, but not in the manner that Remus was hoping. During their affair, Dodge and Imogene take everything from the Remus estate. J. Edgar Hoover sends an agent to investigate Dodge. Despite the evidence against Dodge and Imogene, Attorney General Willebrandt refuses to prosecute. She knew that she should prosecute Dodge on some level, but then she was afraid that if she did, she would be coming under fire for trusting him. And she would set the cause back for women in politics and women having careers in general, I think, decades. And that was really weighing on her mind. Imogene files divorce papers. Remus is now desperate and furious. He suffers what are called brainstorms. It was a euphemism for temporary insanity. And his growing suspicion that his beloved Imogene was out cavorting with a very prohibition agent who put him in jail, I think really put Remus over the edge. Dodge and Imogene tried to deport Remus, but failed. When he gets out of prison, they hire a hitman to assassinate him, but that fails too. Remus tracks her down. A car chase in Cincinnati leads to a foot chase where he finally grabs her at this gazebo in Eden Park and shoots her at point-blank range with a pearl-handled revolver. Police never find the weapon. But Remus turns himself in, always the showman. 
Remus defends himself in court and pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. He was somebody who really was very charming and had a way with words, and that if you could just convince people that he was on the right side of the law, even though he clearly wasn't, they were going to buy it. You know, Remus spent his whole life selling himself, selling his product, selling himself as a Chicago defense attorney, selling his concoctions as a pharmacist. And there was no reason why this would be any different. He could always sell himself. And he was right because the jury bought it very easily, very quickly. What was their explanation? Oh, Remus has suffered enough. <laughs> I mean, and I think that the big question here was that prohibition was on trial. Um, even more so than George Remus. To German immigrants in Cincinnati, Remus is a folk hero. He avoids prison and enters a psychiatric facility. But then, months later, experts declare Remus sane and release him. As a free man, he tries to find the money and the prized possessions. He hopes Imogene's safety deposit box will contain nearly $2 million in cash and diamonds. But all he finds is liquor. In the end, he dies at the young age of 52 from a stroke. And sort of spent his last days in a boarding house, you know, a really far cry from the lavish um, lifestyle he had lived when he bought that mansion up in Price Hill in Cincinnati. Remus loses his fortune and his true love. In pursuit of wealth and power, the characters of this story deceive each other and themselves. In the end, there are no winners. Remus's life is a spectacular story. But perhaps because he presents himself more as CEO than criminal mastermind, the violent mob bosses of America overshadow the bootlegger king's reign. His obituary reads, another Gatsby passes. His gravestone in Kentucky includes a sculpture of a woman perched on the shoulders of two angels. But Abbott says soon after his death, the cemetery caretaker discovers the angel's wings have been smashed to pieces. Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at WGNTV.com slash Backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.